What dangers do we face? When we think about the, um, uh, the Lord's church and God's people, uh, we recognize that there are some things that really uh, are dangerous, or at least there are things that we ought to be concerned about. Uh, and if we were to make the list, uh, to answer this question, our list might be different, depending maybe even on what generation we're from, or what part of the country we're from, or what we see as the future. Maybe even our own family experiences would bring different things to the front of the list. Uh, but we could go to God's Word and we access what God uh, warns us about, what He knows that God's people ought to be concerned about. I believe that we're forced to put near the top of the list, if not on the top of the list, the false teacher. Uh, false teaching is something that God had consistently warns His people about. Uh, some would even say, I think, that uh, it may very well be, at least from the biblical perspective, the thing that God most speaks to His church about in the context of exhortation. Uh, is to be careful uh, because there are those who will come and teach that which is wrong. Now that should alert us, at least that should uh, make us pause to consider uh, that uh, this is something we ought to be concerned about if God is concerned about it. And certainly God recognizes the dangers that we face spiritually. Have you ever heard false teaching? Uh, you know, you think about that for a moment. If, if maybe if you've been a person that's been um, a member of the Lord's Church for some time or you talk, you've heard individuals that preach out of the Bible or teach out of the Bible or maybe you've been involved in doing that yourself. We may tend to think that uh, false teaching is not something that we really have to worry about because we're not teaching it and we're not hearing it anywhere and so uh, we think that maybe it's something for somebody else to worry about. But the reality of it is is that we have heard false teaching. In fact, we hear it all the time uh, in our own lives. We may not recognize it for what it is. Uh, but there's a lot that goes on and that's, that's spoken of even that comes to us in terms of uh, connotations and principles that are we assume and that others assume uh, that are not right. If you watch television, you listen to the radio, you gather information from the internet, it's obvious that we become, uh, uh, we, we uh, allow the access for false teaching to become more and more and we are exposed to error in that way. Um, and maybe that there's even some of that we're falling for and we just don't know it. And we maybe uh, have imbibed, imbibed some uh, false teaching and uh, believe that it's true, uh, and we don't know really uh, that it's false. That's dangerous. I think, especially from the standpoint of the, uh, the time that we live in, uh, I think about um, what took place in the first century. You know, that we're going to talk about some of the warnings that are in the scriptures about false teaching and how God was concerned about. Uh, in nearly every congregation the apostles wrote to, this aspect that individuals would come in and even secretly teach things. How was that to take place? You think about the first century. You know, it, took some, it took some effort, some energy uh, to influence the masses in the first century. Uh, if you were going to write something and disseminate it, then it had to be copied by hand, delivered by hand, taken by foot or horseback to somewhere, and that information then had to be made known to others or maybe taught to others. It would have been an arduous process to some extent, or certainly we would recognize that, it, uh, that in terms of the confines of a local church or a local community, particularly as it was being led by apostles, that it certainly wouldn't compare to what it's like in our day, in our generation, uh, when we recognize that information, even false information, can be translated or can't transmitted around the world the blink of an eye, that you can be influenced by those individuals that live on the other side of the globe. Uh, instantaneously, information can be there. And so churches and Christians can be influenced by what they hear and by what they say. And every false teacher nearly probably has a Twitter account 
has a way to disseminate that information and you can be privy to it. So what does God tell us about that? Well, he says we need to be careful. The passage we focused on uh, this month in talking about and looking at the teachings of 1 Timothy uh, from, from chapter 1, verse 3, Paul told Timothy to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So in the very opening words of Paul's letter to this young evangelist, he says that there are some who swerved away from the gospel, spending their time on fables and myths and what he describes as endless genealogies. He says, teach no other gospel. Now when we first looked at this in the first lesson of the month, we mentioned that this had certain implications to it. One of the implications that certainly I think is here is that there is an objective truth. Paul's words to teach no other doctrine imply there is the first doctrine or original doctrine and there is a possibility for, there, uh, for another one to come along. And so there, because there can be another do- gospel, then there has to be a right gospel or a true teaching. And that ultimately points to this aspect of inspired language, inspired teaching. Truth is the product of God's revelation. And that's the foundation from which the apostle makes this statement and for the basis from which every apostle apostolic warning would exist is that there is a right doctrine and there is a right teaching and that from the very first century that individuals were being pointed back to that particular doctrine. Jesus said in John chapter 17 as he prayed to the Father talking about his apostles sanctify them in the truth your word is truth. And those statements itself would present the aspect of of objective teaching. So when Paul warns Timothy, he warns them from that basis. But Paul's warning to Timothy and his charge to Timothy is not the first, nor certainly the only warning against false teaching. The fact of the matter is that the Bible is full of that, and the New Testament has myriads of warnings issues to God's people against those who would come and lead them to stray. In Jeremiah chapter 23, where uh, Brother uh, Dennis just read for us a few moments ago, the prophet says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Now I mentioned that passage, and the Lord willing, we're going to go back to it in a few moments, but what Jeremiah says here, what the, what the Lord's word that is brought to Jeremiah again, would present to us even back then, Uh, in the midst of inspired prophets speaking for God's people, such as Jeremiah, that truth was objective and that the truth was identified by that which would come from the mouth of the Lord. That before the person could speak, God had to speak. Before the prophet was to be accepted, God had to be the one who would put put the words in his mouth. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus himself said, False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect beyond the guard. I have told you these things beforehand. In Acts chapter 20, Apostle Paul met with the elders from Ephesus and he warned them to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit had made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So Paul gave specific reference to this, to these church leaders. That this is what was going to happen, and you need to be aware of it. You're responsible for keeping out these wolves. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 3, Peter said, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. 
and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive way, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Now put yourself in the position of those who received this particular warning firsthand. Those who were in the original audience. What would it mean for a prophet, someone, or an apostle, someone who knew God's will and was revealing God's will to come to you and say, this is what's going to happen. Some among your own number are going to teach false doctrine. People are going to be swept away in destructive heresies. And they're going to be led astray even to the point that they will fall away from God and be lost. Those were severe warnings. And certainly, the first century church was admonished to take them seriously about what might happen. And so we look at this and we recognize that danger uh, that was present in the first century is still with us today. And the words that God speaks through His apostles still ought to ring true to us. Or at least they ought to make you see us be on the alert and be watchful for false teaching and recognize the danger of it. Well, how do we discern? Um, How do we uh, tell when someone's a false teacher? What are the tests? The Apostle John wrote late in the first century, and he wrote in a time, in his epistles, he wrote in a time uh, when some of the heresies that had been prophesied about, at least talked about, I believe, by the Apostle Paul, maybe were already uh, beginning to take fruit and certainly were beginning to be um, evident in the churches around. The Apostle John said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now again, we're, we're listening to the word that John wrote to other churches that existed before in the first century, but the, certainly the principles and the application of the admonition apply to us as well. When John was writing, probably dealing more specifically with the errors of Gnosticism and those who came along and denied the historical Jesus, who believed that it wasn't possible for Jesus to be both God and exist in human flesh, that when John was referencing that, then what he was saying here was specifically attuned to what was being taught that was false. And so he talks about testing the spirits. The idea of spirits there is a reference to ideas or teaching, not mysticism or spirit in terms of uh, the aspect of uh, a ghost, but the idea that individuals will have ideas. They will have teachings that will come along, and we need to make sure that we're able to test them or to approve them or put them to the test. And we notice that from what John says to those who may very well have been involved in false teaching in his own day, that this is objective, that There were things that were from God and there were things that were not from God. And that's the distinction John makes. Test the spirits because there's some things from God and some things not from God. And the goal then was to discard those things that were not from God. Well, if they're not from God, they're from men. And that's certainly implied in that. But the idea here is that the things from God held a place of authority and held a place of reverence and certainly a place of responsibility that other things did not. That the teachings of men were not on a par with the teachings of God. That those things that came later on that made sense to men, that seemed to sit, fit culturally and philosophically into their own thinking, were not the same as the things that had been revealed by the apostles. However disdained they might have been in the culture in which they lived, however much they seemed to not fit, the things that were from God were different and were to be held on to. 
And so what we have again is clear evidence and implication from the Scriptures that an established set of truth for all time had come from God by the end of the first century and that they were to test the spirits by that very criteria. Jude wrote, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So he's saying as well that there's this set of, of revelation that has to be respected and held on to. Paul calls them the traditions that you received from me that I received from the Lord. Hold fast unto those things. And as we travel further into the teachings of the writings of Paul to first and first and second Timothy, we'll see that particular idea brought back up again. But notice that John's first test in this passage, as I would identify at least in my thinking, is that John is focusing on the historical facts concerning the life of Jesus. Again, probably because it has direct reference to the false teaching that was going on in that day. But John talking about his incarnation, that Jesus actually came in the flesh. And anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh, that person is to be regulated as a false, received as a false teacher, and he is to, you see, he is to be rejected. In fact, Jesus go, John goes as far as to say he's anti-Christ. And if you deny Jesus on any level, if you deny that he came in the flesh, if you deny that he was born of a virgin, if you deny that he performed his miracles, if you look at the, what's revealed by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the biographies of Jesus, and you set it aside, or you minimize it, or you try to rationalize it away, and won't accept what's said there, what are you? He says, you are anti-Christ. You are against Jesus. And so to accept, you see, Jesus... And the things that are said about Jesus was a test of the aspect of whether or not a person was teaching the truth. Later on, John says this, talking about those who would lead others astray and to be false teachers, he says, they are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us, and he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I'd have you notice again that John's clearly breaking things up into two different, you see, parts. There are those things that are of God and there are those things that are of the world. Those are those things that come from God and there are those things that come from men. And even the aspect here of the teachers themselves, they are of God, we are, they are of the world and we are of God. Now I believe when John says that they are, they are of the world and we are of God, that he's speaking representatively as an apostle. That what he's saying is that those who teach something other than what we teach are not like us. And that they are, they are not of God because they teach that which does not come from the Spirit of God. And ultimately he's saying there's no middle ground. That if you're going to teach what is true, you must teach what the apostles taught. You must teach what those taught who were people who were of God and not of the world. That there's no mixing those things two, two together. And there's so much of that that goes on in religion today. Where the Bible is seen as sort of a reference work that we can pull, pull things from. Uh, but then the teaching and certainly what goes on in terms of trying to influence people's minds is uh, our teachings that are filled with the philosophies and teachings of men. And if we can go get a Bible verse to support it once in a while that we can take out of context and reference it, then that's okay. John says we're speaking the things of God. Everybody else that's speaking something else is a false teacher. And so those who know God, that he says in the text, are those who demonstrate that they know God because they accept the words and deeds of those who are from God. And so John makes application of that and talks about knowing God from the standpoint of loving your brother, knowing God from the standpoint of obeying the commandments of God. That's not only just listening to what God says and recognizing the source of truth, 
that exists in apostolic message, but it's also, as John says, putting it into practice. But one doesn't exist without the other. One can't be claimed without the other. You cannot claim to be of God if you're teaching something that does not come from God. And so the apostolic doctrine of Scripture is the basis on which, you see, an individual would be able to tell whether or not someone was a false teacher. And John lays down this criteria, these tests, that are clear and simple and certainly were applicable to them as well as to us. In Acts chapter 17, we see this particular test in action. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea from Thessalonica. When they arrived, they went into the synagogues of the Jews. And they were more fair-minded to those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So what's going on in Berea? Well, Paul's preaching. He's preaching that which comes from God. And the Scripture here is not the New Testament Scripture. It's the Old Testament Scripture that's being referenced here. But the principle is the same. And I, I mention this because I think certainly what, what we have here is the recognition that the criteria by which truth would be determined has always been the same. It's always referenced from the standpoint of whether or not God has spoken, whether God has revealed. And so Paul would teach. And those you see who were individuals who would receive Paul's teaching were those and receive it in the right way would be those who see who would look back at the scriptures and see that he was teaching the things that had been revealed from God. And so the principle and the process is based upon the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal the mind of God and the willingness of the Holy Spirit to reveal the mind of God through the foundational teachers of spe- teaching of special messengers. And that's what Jesus laid down to his apostles. I'm going away, but I'll lead you. But I'll, uh, the Holy Spirit will come and He'll guide you into all truth, and you'll be my witnesses, and you will judge the twelve tribes of Israel in the time to come, and you will, you see, uh, make uh, be be the doctrine by which the church will be guided. And we talked about that in a lesson not too long ago. Paul says the Lord's church is built upon foundation of the apostles and prophets, and so the principle here of establishing truth for God's people, truth that can be relied upon, is pretty simple to understand. But one thing I wanted to mention about this aspect of the false teacher as it relates to what we're studying and uh, what we've studied already this month and maybe even what we studied even this morning. When we think about how to identify the false teacher, there's more than one answer to that. Now, we've given a basic aspect of identifying the false teacher by comparing what he teaches with apostolic doctrine, going as we would to the Bible, the Scripture, to see if what's being said is true. And Peter talks about the aspect of the false teacher and warns against him, not so much from the standpoint of, uh, of the doctrine that he would teach, though that is included in, Paul, in Peter's referencing, but to the life that they lived. And so when Peter describes the false teacher, he describes the false teacher being able to be identified by the fruits of his life. The lascivious, covetous man, the man you see who's hypocritical, he, the, the, that always comes out about the false teacher, that he does not have the same motivations as those who would teach the truth. And so you can identify the false teacher, you see, Peter said, by the fruits of his life. And that's another test. And Peter, I think, uh, Peter's teachings provides a platform from which we can study that. But a corollary to that, and I think in addition to this aspect of thinking about how false teaching can be discerned among us so that the dangers can be averted, has to do with sin. And that a teacher's beliefs and doctrines concerning sin is one of the clear ways that, a fault, that false teachers make themselves known. And I think there are a couple of questions we can ask about the teaching that we hear around us and the things we see in religion today where this might become applicable. Uh, How accurately do those who are doing the teaching emphasize and handle sin and explain the consequences of sin according to what the scriptures say? 
Is what this person is saying about sin and guilt before God what's coming out of the Scriptures? Do we see the same approach to sin that's made in the teaching and that is emphasized in the teaching that was, took place in the first century? How much and how accurately do they emphasize the right solution to sin? Is sin spoken of from the guilt of sin spoken of as something that ought to be avoided from the standpoint of the emotional aspect of guilt? Is sin minimized and rationalized away? Is the, is the sin that exists in a person's life are the right solutions presented as, as they existed in the first century in the sense of the gospel message itself as the cross as being the answer to sin and the things that take place on the cross are there things that are taught about blood and about propitiation about atonement about the wrath of God is the one teaching talking about the importance of repentance and turning away from sin in an individual's life does it make does it make clear that those who belong to God will depart from wickedness? Is it emphasized that a person must be willing to confess their sin and in that contrition be willing to confess Jesus as the solution to sin? Is baptism taught? Water baptism, immersion into the death of Jesus Christ in order to be the answer to a person's response to sin so that a person is baptized in the death of Christ and might rise to walk in a newness of life just like the Scriptures teach. Now, those are, I think those things certainly come into play. And they become avenues by which we can identify those who are actually teaching the truth. Do they attempt to minimize sin and justify themselves? And one of the characteristics, I think, of the false teacher many times is that they're very willing to talk about the sins and the problems with others. But when it comes to them, then that's a different story. Jesus recognized this among the Pharisees. He recognized their hypocrisy. He recognized that they were, they, though they were religiously respected and religious elite, that they were far from understanding the true, under, the, the true meaning of the law and what God expected. In Luke chapter 16, he says about the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so Jesus recognized that one of the characteristics of the Pharisees as being false teachers was that they made exceptions for themselves. And they established their own loopholes concerning the law because they weren't interested in really obeying God or even necessarily being right with God, but rather simply teaching for the sake of their, of their position before men. But one way I think we see this aspect of the false teacher's relationship to the doctrine of sin is in Satan himself. You know, Satan was the first false teacher, wasn't he? He's the fellow who first came along and said, uh, no, that's, I know what God said, but that's not true. He's the one certainly who started all by deception and delusion and getting Adam and Eve to do what was wrong by deceiving them. Well, how did Satan accomplish that? And when we look at what the Bible records to us about Satan's activity, do we see this emphasis or certainly this uh, connection between the false teacher and his perspective on sin. Now you'd think Satan would have a pretty good perspective on sin, and I'm not proposing to know what what Satan knows about the consequences of sin. I know that he's not omniscient like God is, but I believe that Satan understands this aspect of rebellion against God and even the consequences of sin. But that's not what he teaches, is it? His perspective on sending out his doctrine making known his ideas, presenting his spirit that ought to be tested, can certainly be called to order on the aspect of how he relates sin. Well, 
Well, we recognize a couple of things about this, and we'll just mention a few things as, as we uh, end up the sermon. One thing that false teachers do in relationship to sin is they cast doubt on God's Word, what God has actually said. But many times the false teacher is bold enough to take an adversarial view of what God has said. To the point it says, well, I know this is what this says, but this is not really the right interpretation of this, or this, the context doesn't bear out that that's really what God wants. Or just the aspect that it doesn't really matter all that much now. It's common for false teachers to distort the words of God, even to the point of impugning what the Bible actually says or what God has actually said in the Bible. It doesn't really mean that. We're not really accountable to that. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, the Lord commanded the man, it says, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you will surely die. Now there's nothing complex about that. There's nothing that would, on the surface of it, tempt a man to, to try to analyze away what God has said. And I don't think it was difficult for Adam and Eve to understand what God commanded and what they were not to do. But the serpent, it says, in chapter 3, verse 1, was more cunning, the word being subtle or crafty, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He opens up with a question. Now, in a sense, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Not difficult for us to answer that. And I don't believe it was difficult for Eve to answer that question either. As this is what God has said? And Eve gives an answer. And flicks, there's, a, there, there's some context in which she may have amplified the answer of God, but certainly she understood the restrictive element of what God had told her in the commandment that would keep her from sinning. But Satan was able to deceive her, you see, by casting doubt simply by the asking of a question as to whether or not this is truly what God... Has God indeed said this? Is this really what He wants you to do? And certainly in the context of this, He presented a false and an accurate view of one's responsibility to those words. That Satan suggested to Eve that she would not experience the consequences that God had revealed. That though it says plainly that the day you eat it you shall die, He says you will not surely die. So not only did he seem to impugn God, and I think did impugn God's authority in what he said, or even the accuracy of how it could be understood, but certainly he presented this aspect that you are not as responsible to the consequences as what God has actually said. And false teaching can go either way, can it? We look in the scriptures and we see it going both ways. The false teacher comes along and some false teachers... You see, they distort God's word by giving too little responsibility to the individuals who are under God's commands. By saying, eh, you really don't have to do that. That's not really, really going to happen. That really doesn't matter. God doesn't really care about that. And we see that often in our society today. Where what the responsibility that's found in God's actual words are not what's imparted to those who claim to teach God's words. The other aspect as well existed in, in that day and our day too. And that is false teachers can come along and imply too much responsibility or call people to a responsibility that God has never presented before them. The Pharisees used the law of God to increase the burdens on the people and they added to God's law the tradition as though it was equal with the word of God. That was false, binding traditions of men as though it was God's law. Both of those 
approaches are satanic. Both of those approaches are very well effective. And what they produce, we'll talk about this in a minute, they produce this aspect you see of not only the sin of the individual, but the inability of the individual to understand through consciousness whether or not they are sinning before God. It's a distortion of God's Word. And the false teacher, you see, is the individual who is many times very good at that. What we recognize as well, Satan was able to do all of that, and he did do that with, with Eve, but Satan is a false teacher also, following the pattern that I think we, we often see, is that was willing to condemn the people who warn others. In the context of Adam and Eve and God and Satan, in Satan's view, who becomes the bad guy? You know, he flips it around, doesn't he? Well, wait a minute. God wants you to do that? Oh, I know why God wants you to do that. He wants you to do that because if you do that, you'll be like Him, and He doesn't really want you to be like Him. And so false teachers often condemn the people who warn others, who speak accurately about sin and its destruction, as a way of being able to open up people's hearts to the teaching that's false about sin. And so they accuse others who talk about sin as being fear-mongers and divisive, and the word that's used so many today, so much today, haters. Talk about sin, that means you hate somebody. That, you, that you're a hater. You see, that's the way false teaching is. And that's the way Satan has always operated. And Satan accused God of trying to keep them from some extra special biblical and some extra special knowledge or status or experience. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good or evil. Good and evil. Well, there's some truth to that. Well, their eyes were open when they sinned. It was a consciousness of sin they'd never experienced before. They hid themselves. They are fearful for the presence of God because they have sinned. And you and I experience the consequence of that from the standpoint of the presence of sin in our own lives and the consciousness of sin in our own societies. And so what we recognize is that Satan is very effective in distorting the message of God from the very beginning even to now through the same techniques of being able to twist what the Bible says about sin. And about the consequences of sin. Well, how does all that play out? The standpoint of the effect of the false teacher. Particularly as we think about it here in the aspect of distorting, changing the teaching about sin. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 described the false teachers of his day as the enemies of the cross. For many walk of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Now there's several sermons in there from the standpoint of, and maybe we preached them already in Philippians, through Philippians about the aspect of the false teacher being called the enemy of, of the cross. But why is the false teacher an enemy of the cross? Well, it's not just because he doesn't teach about the cross. He might not. He might completely overlook the cross or have the facts all wrong about what the cross is. It's not necessarily, you see, because he distorts the teachings about the cross, but because, you see, he's the enemy of the cross because he subverts the goal of the cross. One of the things the false teacher does that's so destructive and so dangerous to the church of God's people is through false teaching the very elements of a person's salvation and the elements of the cross to bring that about become useless or ignored or the goal of that gospel 
that includes the cross is not followed. And that's why Paul says in Galatians, if anybody comes to you and teaches another gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. You know, you read Galatians 2 and you think about what, what, what Paul's dealing with in the book of Galatians even and, and the aspect of this, the justification of man and how it takes place and his efforts to try to correct some of the false teaching that goes on there. And you recognize at the very beginning that Paul, Paul sees this as a real threat. It's not just that people got a couple things wrong here that they maybe they need to straighten out. He says, even if I come to you and I teach you something other than what was delivered originally about this, I'm to be accursed. Why? Because false teaching is an enemy of the cross. It's a different gospel. It will not accomplish the same thing as the true, pure, right gospel. Jeremiah chapter 23 Go back there. Jeremiah, prophet of God, looked at what was going on in those who were coming, giving messages to Israel about what they should and shouldn't do, even from the political standpoint of the threats, that, the physical threats that existed there. And ignoring what God was saying through his own prophets, and he says, I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. I also have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of the evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. Now have you noticed what Jeremiah says about the false prophets and teachers of his day? Why was this such a horrible thing? Well, one reason that Jeremiah points out that false teaching in that time was horrible because it did not turn people back from their wickedness. They strengthened the hands of those who were practicing wickedness. What does that mean? That means they weren't teaching the right thing about sin. That's what they weren't teaching. In whatever way it was coming, what they failed to recognize is what God had said in His law about abominations and sin and about idolatry and about listening to God and doing what was right rather than what was wicked. In verse 17, he says, they continually say to those... I've got that up here. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. You see what they're saying? Just what Satan said. Just what all the false teachers say about the concept of sin. You can do it and it doesn't matter. There are no consequences here. You're not really responsible for it. Don't worry about it. Be at peace. And that's what's going on today, isn't it? In terms of the morality of our day. That there are marriage religious denominations that are being towed along right with the cultural assumption that these things are alright. And expressing to their people to not worry about them, to not confront them, to not reprove them because it's not that big a deal. We all need the choice and the freedom to do what we have, to, what we want to do. And there are the false teachers telling people, just be at peace. In verse 20 through 22. Jeremiah goes on to say, The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days you will understand it perfectly. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned from their evil way and from their evil of their doings. You see what God said about Jeremiah. These people are not speaking for me. They've never spoken for me. And if you listen to them and you follow them, you're not getting my words from this. 
They went ahead and spoke anyway. And if you follow in their counsel, you're not getting the counsel of God. If you had followed in my counsel, if they had followed in my counsel, they'd be turning away from their sin, not practicing anymore. Now again, that, that kind of says something to me when I look around at what's going on in our society and what's going on even the religious circles of the aspect of the morality that's around us. That when those who teach and those who stand up and attempt to lead people are not calling, calling people away from their sin, when they're saying, follow our counsel and you won't have to worry about it, we need to be alerted to that. If we listen to God and His counsel, we'll not only be concerned about sin, we'll be sinning less. We'll be fighting against it with everything that we have. In Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 14, I don't have that one up here. Prophet Jeremiah says again, Your prophets have seen for you false uh, the prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. And lamenting over Israel, what Jeremiah saw was that the end of these false prophets, the end of this false teaching, led in the same direction. And that is, it does not uncover the iniquity of the people. It doesn't solve the problem. And the gospel that leaves this out, you see, is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's another gospel. People think envision the aspect that what God wants for them is to be prosperous in this earth, or to simply have a good experience, or to have those things that life would, would make life here easier. And they're not based upon the moral principles or whether or not a, people, a person or people are walking according to the dictates of God. Or a gospel that leaves out the true solution to sin in repentance and confession and baptism and coming to the cross because of what takes place at the cross and the atonements that's there is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is another gospel. And it will never solve the problems that you and I truly face. So it becomes, I think, in the context of that, looking at just a small part of it as we have this evening, it becomes obvious to us, though, that this is something we need to be concerned about and the dangers that we face of false teaching because there are so many that are being led astray. It drives us back to God's Word. It drives us back to the authority of what God has said to put our hearts and minds in the meditation of Scripture and to learn what God has for us to listen tentatively to what He's revealed in Scripture. We'll hope that you're driven to that as well. Let me suggest to you that you need to do what God tells you to do to be a child of God. If there's anything on which there's false information out there, that's easily believed by all that come along. It's about how a person gets right with God. There's just so much wrong about what the Bible, te- about the, what the world teaches about that. An individual that goes to the, to, to the scriptures is going to be compelled to look at the examples of conversion that are found through inspiration in the Word of God. And they're going to be compelled to look close, closely at how the people of the first century responded to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That it wasn't through coming down and, offer, and, and offering a sinner's prayer that those, that's not in the Bible. That what was there, you see, was the aspect of an individual through true repentance from the things that, were, that they recognized were wrong in their life that the law of God had pointed out to them being willing to confess that Jesus Christ is their Lord and be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we call you to. Not because this is what this church does, but because this is what God reveals in His Word. We obey it while we stand in sin.